Hello and welcome to episode three of the Good Good Golf Podcast. Rod Murray at the controls as we prepare to dive once again into the abyss that is the endlessly fascinating world of golf. Before we do that this week, though, a big welcome to a new member of the Talkin' Golf Network, one of Australia's most popular and successful players of the past two decades. Nick Ahern has launched a podcast based on his terrific book, Tour Mentality. Nick is, of course, best known by many for twice beating Tiger Woods in the world match play, and he's joined by Sydney sports writer Matt Cleary for a, re- a regular dissection of one of the most overlooked parts of the game for most of us, the mind. Check the show notes of this episode for a direct link to Nick's show, or head to Talk golf.com where you'll find not only Nick's new podcast but other top quality podcasts on the game as well including the wonderful feed the ball we'll have some more exciting additions to announce in the coming weeks for the talk and golf network that's enough of the admin let's get on with today's episodes no shortage of topics to discuss including the fallout from last week's stunning revelation by co-host Derek Duncan about his evolving, I say in air quotes, stance on the distance debate. Lots of interesting and intelligent chatter about that on Twitter. But before we get into that and lots more, let me introduce my fellow travellers on the journey from Sydney, path guru, Adrian Loke. Adrian, back from Denmark, wherever else it was that uh, that you've been this past week or two. Hopefully the jet lag allows you to stay awake for the whole show. That would be nice. Yeah, it's, it's early morning on Monday here, but I'm actually kind of wired because it, it just feels like, I don't know what time it feels like, but I'm, I'm pretty, I'm ready to go. I've had my first good coffee in about two weeks, so it's, good to hear. Well, it's you, gone you, straight to my head. You were in a mood last week, so let's hope a bit of that snippiness carries over to this week because I, for one, enjoyed it. From the US, where he's likely hiding out in a concrete bunker after last week's discussion on the distance debate, host of the Feed the Ball podcast, Derek Duncan. Derek, I hope you're pleased with yourself, what you've done this past week. Not especially, no, but I still have the helmet on (laughs) to protect myself from the incoming flak, and I'm trying to uh, rescue my corporal being from the possession of Scott Fawcett. We'll see how that goes. Oh, now I didn't see see any interaction between you and Scott because Scott blocked me some time ago. Okay. I I miss all of his missives. I did see a bunch of deleted tweets. I was accused of being abducted. Scott Hayes' thing. Scott Hayes accused Derek of being body snatched by Scott Fawcett. <laughs> That's right. That's right. There were some real highlights in that trip. We'll come to all of that. Uh, come to all of that shortly. Shortly, we'll have a good discussion about the discussion that was prompted by our discussion last week. Uh, but first, let's come to some exciting news a bit closer to home. Those who've been with us since episode one know that the intention for the Good Good Golf podcast, and in fact, the whole Talking Golf Network, is to do what they call the cool kids monetize. Uh, start generating some income. Starting this week, I'm pleased to say that that is happening. Our first sponsors join the network. A big hello, big welcome, big thanks to thegolfsociety.com.au, thegolfsociety.com.au. Yes, I will repeat it constantly. The name probably doesn't really suggest necessarily what we're talking about here. Retailers of high-end apparel and shoes and such. Kudos to Adrian on this one in many ways. He introduced me to Aaron, who owns The Golf Society. More to the point, though, Logue, you have the fashion sense that I lack. <coughs> Pardon me. It's much more your field of expertise as anyone who's seen the way I dress will attest. Uh, tell us a bit about the Golf Society website and that world of high-end fashion that you and they move in. There's a great link in our show notes to a special offer for listeners at thegolfsociety.com.au. And uh, there's some good brands there, Ralph Lauren, uh, Jay Lindenberg, which is very popular in Scandinavia. They've got great uh, wicking performance on their shirts, Rod. Uh, which uh, I know that uh, just wicks away that sweat, which uh, must be something you see quite quite oh. often when you're out in the golf. Oh. Zing, you are. <laughs> <a dude. laughs> 
the um, uh, Hugo Boss, Calvin Klein, Cross, Lacoste, Puma. I'd like to draw listeners' attention this week to a particular uh, item that's caught my eye. It's the Cross Vapor Windproof Golf Jacket in lichen green, and it's got orange piping. Very nice item, and uh, it's just a very classy piece of outerwear for just over a hundred dollars Australian, but with our special offer, you can get it for less than a hundred dollars. What's what's the offer, Rod? Uh, so twenty five dollars off purchase over sixty dollars for talking golf listeners. So there's a special landing page being set up. The link, as Adrian said, is in the show notes. You're going to look. I actually do know what wicking is, and I like those nice fabrics. <laughs> now I I am a heathen when it comes to <coughs> pardon me fashion, as you will attest, Adrian. But there's something about nice golf gear, isn't there, Derek? Are you a nice high-end apparel wearer? Not too high. Yeah, I'm a sensible person. I like to look nice, though, and uh, I'm against sweat showing as much as possible. So uh-huh. wicking, I support wicking. I endorse yeah. it. I'm interested in this uh, this piece of outerwear that Adrian's describing. Yeah, indeed. It's, it's very classy. Is I think the- it can transform your look on the golf course, just having one really nice piece of clothing, especially if it's, you know, it's covering up. Uh, the same sort of shirt that everyone else is wearing, then you know, a nice piece of outerwear can really transform your look. Uh, I must say, you always do look good on the golf course. Is this the way of the future or the way of the now? Uh, shopping online for clothing and golf, Adrian? Is this what the cool kids do? Yeah, I think once you've got, once you're confident about what your size is and that it's going to fit and there's going to be no hassle with returning or anything like that, which you know Aaron handles really well with the golfsociety.com.au. But the um, you know, you can go and confidently purchase a few things online, and there's always good specials. I think much, much better specials than you're able to um, identify just walking into a store. Yeah, bricks. It's, it's the old thing. Bricks and mortar is much more expensive to run than a warehouse of gear <laughs> and a website. So, uh, thanks, welcome aboard, Aaron. TheGolfSociety.com.au. Go and check it out. Click the link in the show notes to take advantage of that offer. Twenty-five dollars off for uh, store credit on any purchase over sixty dollars. That's enough of the advertising. Let's talk about some golf. Let's throw it back to last week, Adrian. I'll let Derek defend himself uh, shortly. But the response to his outburst on the show last week, one of the most interesting things that happened on golf Twitter these last seven days, I thought, give us a taste of some of your favourite responses there. And then we'll have some thoughts and perhaps tease out what some of that stuff tells us about the distance debate, the bubble we live in, and Derek's brand. Uh, yeah, I'll, I'll let Derek defend himself in a moment <laughs> but, uh, and, and clarify his position because I think he, he sort of moved about a little bit with uh, with where he took this uh, throughout the week. But it was a pretty epic thread that ensued from um, that conversation starter that you put out there last week, Derek. Um, but there was a good comment from the Gorse Nod or sorry, at Gorse Nod on Twitter um, who compared – uh, watching pro golf to ancient Scandinavian hunters observing the modern biathlon. I think there's some validity to that. Yeah. Pro golf's sort of become this thing where it's a skills test of this specific range of skills and it's lost the element of playing a game. So I think I think that's why Gorse Nod was uh, driving out there and I think that was a really good um, comparison. Uh, he also made a great comparison there where he said, we could get to the point where pro golf could just be played on a three-hole course with one par three, one par four, and one par five with enough stuff on the land to test every skill, you know, make sure that there's there's fairway bunkers, there's greenside bunkers, there's water hazards, there's walls to hit over, there's blind shots or whatever. Just have every skill tested in those three holes and you could just go round and round and round and that's pro golf. 
you could turn that into a stadium. There's actually some really interesting stuff to explore in that as an idea. But let's have Derek. Let's let Derek have a say. Derek, did you have any inkling of what you might be starting when you <laughs> opened your good good golf podcast account with right, a yeah. uh, an evolving view on the distance debate? Yeah, no, I, I mean, I don't think that I. I'm sure I knew that it that it would be you know somewhat controversial because I've been fairly vocal you know since I got on Twitter about being someone who was sort of offended by modern equipment and the and the way the modern game is played at the highest levels and um I, but I think what 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 has really happened to me essentially is that I'm just re reanalyzing my positions. Mm-hmm on these things because I, I because i think i came at it sort of initially without really giving it a lot of due thought you know my my uh, my resistance to the modern equipment and the distances they're hitting it and it was sort of what you know i came to it with a sense of almost moral obligation as a crusader without turning the coin over so to speak and and that's kind of what i'm doing now and and obviously like i said last week what what made me start to reanalyze it was just seeing up close these young guys and how they play golf and it and it's a it's amazing to behold it up close repeatedly over and over again and and i i think i've evolved to the point where i don't think they're just unskilled and all they can do is one thing good they're really talented all through the bag and they're in the in the in lieu of the organizations or the pga tour or anybody else doing anything to regulate equipment they are just simply taking the available equipment and the opportunities and the game as it's presented to them and doing extraordinary things with it. And I don't know that, that there's, it's a, that's a bad thing as it relates to them. So if, if nothing else, I'm, I'm, I've shifted almost a, to a, a point of appreciation for their skills rather than looking at players themselves as part of the, the problem. Um, as far as the, the, the Twitter discussion goes, it was really hard for, even for me to follow. I tried to respond, you know, as much as I could, but it started to go from my, whatever I said in the, you know, in the podcast last week, however, that was taken to, uh, talk about professional game and bifurcation. And then it became an overall rollback and mm-hmm. there was debates about that. And it, it morphed into other, you know, basically anytime this issue comes up on social media, it just evolves into a free for all and, and really the same kind of a state of the game roundtable of every single issue involving equipment and, and it, all the all the topics are hit and, and you can't even follow it anymore. There's there's no straight line through all the arguments. So um, I think I came out of it just as confused as everybody <laughs> well, else did. And we know it's, you it's went Godwin's in law, I think, isn't it? The uh, the law that every internet thread eventually leads to talk about Nazis. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> it didn't quite get to that, though, did it? <laughs> no, it didn't. But, but isn't it interesting, and I think Derek raises a really interesting and valid point here, Adrian, and we're probably all guilty of it. Isn't, a, isn't it absolutely incumbent upon all of us to genuinely consider the other side of the discussion? And I'm not convinced that we always do it. I'm not convinced I always do it. I try. And I think kudos to Derek for going and having a look at turning the coin over and having a look. We should, we could all benefit from doing more of that, including people on the other side of the rollback debate. Definitely. Yeah, I'm, I'm a big believer in strong opinions loosely held. And I think Derek actually demonstrated this all through last week with having some strong opinions, but willing to be swayed and have his position altered. Um, I think that's the position to take on this. That's the rational 
way to approach an argument like this is to have have some strong opinions because you know you can't really get anything done without being um, you know somewhat opinionated. But be be ready to give up on those sacred cows if if a, if you know the evidence proves that you, you've taken the wrong position. So always always right. challenge your own uh, your and, own right, thoughts. Right, you and I even my were kind of in one thread or one tendril of a thread on the opposite you know side of of things, and I think what the the crux of the argument in a way for me is also. Well, I, and I've said, I think I've been fairly consistent in saying if, if push comes to shove, I, I would, for whatever it's worth, would be in favor of bifurcation. Mm-hmm. But I still struggle, and I've yet to see a reason, a connection between 315-yard drives in the so-called gouge, bomb and gouge game and how it affects the average foursome on a Sunday afternoon at their home club. And I just don't see compelling evidence for an overall rollback because as i said last week and i still believe this there there are two separate games there's one is a a a spectacle and entertainment it's become a spectacle and an entertainment and the and then golf is the game that everybody else plays so just because guys are playing a certain style of golf on television doesn't i don't see how it changes anything on the ground and at the golf courses all around the world the way most other people play it um, so that was an that was an interesting kind of thing that that came out of it, and I found myself sort of defending my position on, on that on that rationale um, more than anything else. With that, I, I go back to always go back to the courses that and, and Ian Andrew. I think you called him on this. I'm not sure what his response was. Ian Andrew has said he's a golf architect from Canada. Said many yes. times that the effects of distance very much do affect the local club because there's a, a percentage of uh, amateur players in every club generally the low markers, but not always, young, big, strong guys who, with the equipment, can hit the ball miles and miles offline. And I feel like that's legitimate. I know here in Australia, Adrian, very few courses haven't had some sort of alteration in the last two decades because of issues with boundaries and balls going places they never could go before. I know it was the case of Bonnie Doon during the recent remodel there. I, I don't know what it's been like at Pimble. We haven't had that issue at Mangrove Mountain. We don't have, A, people who hit the ball very far, but B, don't really have surrounding properties. But I do think that the, the, the connection's not linear. You know, if, if Dustin Johnson hits at 350, that doesn't mean that player two on the first tee at Pimble Golf Club Saturday morning is going to hit at 320. But there's going to be a few guys in the club, isn't there? And they don't have the skills to keep it on the straight now. They're good players, but when it's wide, it's really wide. I think it was Andrew – did Andrew Marchbank post something about a three-marker hit the long drive at Seaview this past weekend? The comp was 315 metres. Yeah. I, I don't, Seaview is a good case in point. There's this little nine-hole course, if, if people don't know it, where Andrew Marchbank uh, works. Nine-hole course at Cottesloe in Perth, which is – one of the most beautiful locations, I, I think, anywhere in the world. Really amazing little property, but a public course. Anyone can walk on and play uh, some fantastic golf for like 20 bucks or something. It's really great. Um, but there's one hole there with Cottesloe Beach on the right. Uh, there's there's uh, the hole, uh, probably the best hole in the course. It's the seventh, really like pretty little par four that hugs the right-hand edge of the property. And you've got road and then um, – sort of picnic areas and then beach and water, <laughs> the ocean. And uh, it, it doesn't surprise – it wouldn't surprise me at all that that is a huge insurance issue for that club because 
it's the easiest place in the world, especially with a is it an offshore breeze or an onshore breeze, the one that's pushing out to the water. It, everything would just go straight right, and they've done everything they can. They've moved the tee right up against the right hand boundary, so you're hitting away, away from, from the boundary, but it's still it just it's no defense at all. And and the couple I've only been there a couple of times, but I've seen two massive OBs on that hole, not by me. <laughs> um, but <laughs> balls that have reached the beach, which is way, way right. And and it's because it, you know, it's a par four. It's it's actually a pretty short course, but it's one of the first few times you can sort of take out driver and have a have a big crack at it on the on the course. And I think that's what leads to that big right miss. Scott Champion also contributed to that thread as well, mentioning that he's, he's a golf course designer here in Sydney who's probably had to deal with that with a lot of metropolitan courses in Sydney that are effectively landlocked by housing. Um, and uh, yeah, I do Lee Patterson also at Golf Chronicle on, on Twitter, a great yep. historian, um, had a little back and forth with me. And, and that's a real concern with him. You know, he's I, I think he's in London um, but someplace in, in England and um, a lot of the courses that he knows in his home club is is really being victimized by the, by length. And uh, he worries that the integrity of their club championships is compromised now because uh, the scores are low and people are just overwhelming the golf course. So he's really in favor of an overall rollback. But uh, I think my, my response to that was how many golf courses around the world is this a, a vital problem? Is it is it an existential problem? And, and I, I don't know that you go ahead and change all the laws of golf for a small fraction of golf courses, which I suspect is a small fraction of, of golf courses. There are probably many, many more golf courses that aren't worried about the ball going too far, too far sideways than there are that do have to worry about that. So it becomes a numbers game at some point. And, and how far do you take legislation when it's really only serving the good of the minority rather than the majority. And I don't have an answer to that. There's probably not one, but that, that's something that I keep coming back to in my rationale. Mm, I'm not, not sure I'm convinced about the premise because apart from anything else, time's going to keep moving on. And short of going backwards, we're only just going to keep going forwards. Even if we have a rollback, even if we had a, a rollback across the board, Derek, the very first thing that's going to happen is that the arms race starts again. <laughs> golf has always been sold on the premise that this goes further than that. Uh, you can go back 150 years in the you know the golf press and find advertising that this club hits it further and this ball goes further. So even if you rolled it back, it would only be just resetting the parameters and then the whole thing would start again. And as Mackenzie said, no limit to science. So any. So what do you do? Well, if you had a hundred year plan for golf, what would you do? We don't. But what would you do? I mean, Adrian. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think you've got to set some performance limits on the ball um, and uh, and then see if they can compete on other factors like feel and spin and durability and um, they'll find plenty of stuff that they can compete on, just uh, how cool the brand is as well. Like, I mean, Does the rollback distance. happen in isolation or does it happen in a fundamental change in the way we play the game back to something more recognised when the 80s and 90s where the ability to work the ball was a far more rewarded element of the game rather than just how far you could hit it? Because the thing that happens with distance, of course, is the further you hit it, the less um, relevant angles become. And golf is at its most interesting when angles are the defense. The width plus angles equals golf that's interesting. You hit it in the right place, you can attack. If you're good, you can attack 
golf holes. If you hit it in the wrong place, well, you're defensive, though you've still got a chance. So that's what disappears with you know, the, the really long hitting in golf is because the clubs are too short for the angles to matter as much. So do you it's try It's completely to, gone in elite golf, isn't it? It has. Like, and this is a point that we, Jeff We yearn made. for it every year and we get it maybe one or two holes in the entire professional golf season where you actually see an angle matter. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, what, what sort of a highlight is that to hang out for? Like waiting an entire year for – I mean, I can't think of a single hole where – angles matter anymore in professional golf maybe 11 at augusta but mm-hmm. yeah it's, but even even more on the on the day-to-day level i mean how many people who play golf even consider that or ha- have the ability to consider that even if they do see oh i it's better to come into this green or this pin from the right side over by this bunker you know classic well, strategy not many how many people really think about that and have the ability to to put the ball over there i mean i I, I just I, maybe I play golf with so many more people through the course of my life than you guys do. Different types of people, but almost everybody who's not a like you know a five handicap or better is just trying to hit the ball solid to get it on the middle of the club head, get it up in the air, and filing most of <laughs> filing. And, 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 and agree with that. We, the we, only guys that I really see ever really doing what we talk about classic architecture promoting, attacking your way around a golf course like hitting it to the left, then to the right, then back to the left onto the green are guys who drive it 175 yards and kind of roll the ball along the ground or women for that matter. But the, the people who can actually strike the ball fairly well, you're really just concentrating on hitting it solid. You're thinking about your swing. You're, if you're in the fairway, you're satisfied. So I, I, I guess my, and I'm, what I'm coming back to is like, I just, I just don't see a problem. I really don't. Oh. Certainly it, not it, enough to justify amateur anything. Just, just to overall rollback. Uh, yeah, right. So but in the amateur game, you're, you're not seeing a problem. In the professional game, professional game is the product that it's produced, though, because I think, as you said, the pros will opt. It's not their fault. They're, they're just optimizing for the challenge that's presented to them, and you know they've become extremely good at optimizing for that challenge. Yeah. We might have touched on this last week that, I mean, pro golf, professional golf, the PGA Tour is in danger of, of you know, decapitating itself. Mm. Now, it was interesting when I put that poll up on Twitter with the responses where we got, I think, over 250 responses, which is not quite, doesn't quite meet scientific thresholds. But it was interesting that, that 37% of the respondents watch professional golf for the players and the personalities, I guess, and maybe people put Tiger Woods into that category, and 37% watched professional golf for the golf course. And then the, the, the least, the category that people responded to in favor of least was equipment and shot making, which I would put guys hitting, you know, chicks div, dig the long ball. Well, I don't think this, this poll does not support no, that. That's, that's not why people are tuning in, but that seems to be what the PGA tour is promoting. But there's an old, you know, there's an old adage in addiction that says you can't help somebody that doesn't want to help themselves. And that's what the PGA tour, that's where the PGA tour is right now. They don't acknowledge a problem. They don't think it's a problem. They don't believe they're going to lose eyeballs on the television. In fact, the they, opposite, don't they? They, they believe keep, that it's, that's the path to Nirvana. In fact. Exactly. 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 So, so I'm, it's kind of like, why are we, why worried. are we worried about this, and why are we trying to, trying to open their eyes and help them when they don't want to help themselves? I mean, it, I just, like I said, just 
because put a wall up but, and let the PGA Tour do and the professional tours do what they're doing now, and it'll either work or it won't. But it doesn't. It won't affect your game or my game or Adrian's game or anybody who's listening. It's the game. tragedy of that to me ball. is that golf belongs to all of us, including professional golf, and it did do for an awfully long time. It's it's the same game shared by all of us. It has been, but that's been less and less the case in these last two decades. It's really been built on this different skill set, the ability to have an, a, you know, a swing technically efficient enough to, to get the benefits of modern equipment and propel the ball distances that it was, you know, that certainly golf courses never were prepared for it to go. And golf's losing something with that. This comes back to that point that I often make about who watches golf. Well, golfers. And that's mm. not true of football and cricket and soccer. The percentage of people who play cricket and watch cricket is much less than those who watch golf and play golf. And that disconnect will ultimately damage the rest of the game, not just professional golf. So I take your broader point, uh, Derek, and I've got no great love for the PGA Tour. I'm happy enough to throw my hands up and say, well, let them decapitate themselves. But I actually think it does matter to the rest of it and the game in the long term that we try not to let that happen. That That's my feeling. What do you reckon, Adrian? Is the disconnect between professional golf and recreational golf important or not? Does it just not matter? Let the pros do whatever they do. Let them to turn it into a video game. Uh, well, yeah, I, I think I can see if you just look at that in isolation and try to separate it and compartmentalise it, then there's no harm done. It's one of them's one product and the other one's the game that we play. Um, however, that's just not the case in the real world. Uh, professional golf is, it very, is very influential of the golf that the rest of us play. With regards, particularly with regards how the courses look on TV, I think that's what a lot of committees at the courses that we play then aspire to, and that's there's a danger in that. Um, and I don't like the direction professional golf is taken with that. And secondly, with the way professional golfers behave and with their interminable pre-shot routines and things like that, I think it clearly influences uh, players at the club level as well. Um, with with the amount of silliness they do standing over the ball and preparing to hit a shot. And I think it then influences as well what they're trying to achieve with the with those shots. They're trying to just smash the hell out of it. Um, and, you know, it is only oh, – you, you, you play with the, the wily old blokes at the club and, and they do the thing which Derek described, of, you know, knocking it down 170 metres and actually play a game that – a lot of us are jealous of because, you know, they get round pretty effectively. Um, <laughs> Spend the day out hitting blokes by 30 yards and you walk off the course, they've beaten you by yeah. 12 shots. How did that happen? I don't exactly. understand how that yeah. happened, yeah. And I think it, it speaks very much to Derek's point about, um, you know, all, look, width and angles are irrelevant for most of us as well. I, I, I have to agree. Although I do think at a certain level um, – as he's narrow can, and aerial, let's be honest. That's just as irrelevant. You throw up whatever form of golf you care to play, make it crime and punishment, risk and reward. Most of us aren't competent of playing any of it in any way that no, that's right. remotely sensible. That's right. so, <laughs> but I, I do I think golf can be enjoyed at a level where if, if you do become a reasonably competent ball striker, and I'm talking about people who are off say twelve and below, where there's some competence there. Um, and my some handicap, you level know I'm of off consistency. 13, don't you? Hey. <laughs> Was that deliberate? Oh, nice. You are <laughs> in a mood. Sorry, it might have been deliberate. Uh, no, 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 no. Um, But I think when, once you do reach that level where you've got some level of competency, you can enjoy the game at another level if you are, if you do have an appreciation of architecture 
there's this extra little challenge that you can throw in front of yourself to say, look, maybe, and, and again, you might not even be doing this for scoring because it's, uh, it's, it's statistically not the best way to get around a golf course, but you might be thinking, Oh, I want to go close to that hazard because it gives me a little bit of better angle. And I, I think game, golf is a game where it's, it's constantly games within games. It's like, can I land this chip on that little spot that I've picked out? Can I get this close to that bunker or can I carry that hazard? It's it's little games within games constantly. And I think that's some of the pleasure that you can derive from golf as you as your skills improve. And in that sense, I do think width and angles counts. And it's not just all about hitting for the fattest part of the fairway and the biggest part of the green um, and then and taking into account your shot dispersion. Um, that's one type of golf and, and that you can derive some pleasure from that as well because it's oh you've disappeared it's great fun shooting most golfers do that to hit it at those fat parts of the green and swing smoothly but Uh, we can't all achieve that in a a beautiful display of uh, the world paying you back we just lost you for a good part of that uh, discussion so that was good you just disappeared off the radar it's a lengthy silence which i'll (laughs) That was some good stuff. Really? I'll have to. Yeah, oh. indeed. Not long after you took I a exercised my – I actually, you didn't know this, Adrian, but I actually have a mute button that I, I kind of accidentally <laughs> put my elbow right. on it. Yeah, indeed. Adrian brought up a good point, though. I don't know if it, it'll make it on, but um, about the influence of the PGA Tour. I think core setup is a separate issue. I would. I definitely think there are some, some extreme negatives uh, that come – that, that land at the doorstep of, of courses and, and clubs all over the world based on the decision that the tour makes and how they set up the golf courses and the type of golf that that, that promotes and how it's supposed to look on television. That Television I would, might be more I would focus culprit, all my like all that. my efforts on on talking about that. Um, but but also about the slow play and the I agree with Adrian. That was a really good point about how people emulate the pros, the pre shot routines and, and how they're indecisive and that Again, it's just kind of a separate issue about then technology and the distance the ball goes. But it uh, again, that <laughs> another reason to to try to clean up pro golf. I guess I would get on board with that. That's a that's annoying as hell. We've done exactly what that Twitter thread did because that's how, Gone up. exactly that's- this issue is actually like a big hairball. As soon as you pull at one thread, it affects another, which you then have to pull out to try and correct that, and that starts with it. On the upside, what I will say, what and, and this always impresses me, and it, it pays to remember this because we get, I don't know, other people I think do as well. I get quite emotional sometimes about this sort of stuff. Everyone's passionate, and that's a positive. Even those you disagree with, they're passionate about the game, passionate enough to defend it and argue about it. It's a real positive about the game, I think. Uh, so even in these Twitter threads that sometimes descend into uh, not necessarily productive discussions, at least people are uh, are into the game, and that's that's to the good of the game. I do have one. We'll move off this topic soon because this has now been two weeks we've banged on about this, and hopefully this will be the last time we ever talk about it. <laughs> Highly unlikely. Uh, I got a text from Mike Clayton, Derek, about you. So there's two things in that. One, Mike Clayton sends me texts, so too good me. Uh, And two, he listens to the pod, so that was good. My only problem with Derek's view of modern equipment and college players is that it makes it harder for them to separate themselves one from the other, thus leading to a significant amount of humour, sadness, misery, and feelings of failure when they fail to make it on tour. Clayton has made this point before. Is there anything in that? Do you reckon, Derek, that the kids think they're better than they are because the equipment uh, allows them to think that. Uh, that uh, 
I think I, I have two comments on that. One, I don't know what it was like before. I don't know what it is like in 1985 or 1995 when a, a high schooler was being recruited by a college golf program. If most of them had dreams of becoming pro, I, I would guess that if if um, Oklahoma State or Arizona State is recruiting you, uh, you probably think you're good enough to be a professional when you graduate. That's no different now. Every kid who plays, you know, high division one golf, you know, in the top 20 or 30 programs probably thinks I'm sh- in fact, I'm pretty sure they think they're good enough to be a pro if everything goes right. So, but I, so I don't know if, if the equipment has changed that, that c- level of confidence, even if it's unearned or irrational, I don't know if it's changed that level of confidence for high schoolers going into, into college where I, I mean, I would not want to disagree with Mike Clayton on, on a topic like this, but why not? You've disagreed way, with everyone. In a yeah, way, that's right. in a way <laughs> you're going I great. In a way, I don't follow his point because <laughs> if they are good enough to make it, so I don't. It, let's say they're they're not self deluded. Some of them do make it when the equipment enables them to play the same type of game that's being played on the professional tours right now. So it still does present them. They still have to go out and make birdies. They still have to go out and perform and handle the pressure, whether it's you know with modern equipment or equipment from 1985. So I, I don't know that it, I don't know that it it fills them with delusions of of grandeur any more than than it did in the past because they're preparing themselves to play the professional golf that style of professional golf that they've inherited. You know, it's right it's right in front of them. The guys come out of college right now and have very quick success on the PGA Tour in many cases. So so I I don't know. I'd like to talk to Mike about that some more. It's interesting. He's a I was. I'm always interested in Clayton's view of this stuff because he always surprises me. I always expect him to say one thing, and he says something completely different. He still holds the same position, but he he makes a case that's different to what you're expecting, which is always fantastic. Just I'm, on the poll that sure you had he's there, talking about the guys who actually have success before before we move on, I, I think he's he, he's referring more to the guys who, at an amateur level, are uh, very quickly, even while they're as amateurs in professional events, getting some exceptional results. And on the back of that, they feel like they can make it. But then as soon as that support network that you have with college golf or with elite programs, national elite programs, as soon as that support network goes away and the rigors of professional golf hit, then there's so much more than just their their skill that they've honed of, of like learning to execute these perfect golf shots and, and, uh, I don't know. I think there's an element of that in it, which. Yeah. Well, uh, it's interesting that uh, a lot of these kids who come in, you know, at, at a high level into college already have like almost a mini team around them. They've, they've got relationships with manufacturers. They've got a swing instructor. They've probably been working with since they were 12. They've got in many cases, people that help them with fitness. So they've already got, they're used to that system. They're used to uh, a team. So that, that's not, that's not where they're going to be tripped up because that's just that's all that's basically what they know. I and think then they, they lose their college, team, working. They, they, they lose their college coach and they lose the college trainers and and they've got to find their own team and yeah, uh, I think well, that sure, but destroys them for a year or so. It, it well, I don't know about that. Um, perhaps, probably, it does in many cases. I'm sure. Um, in other cases, we've seen, you know, people come out of the gate pretty hot and they handle that transition really well. Um, what college coaches do is is 
do the thing that they're supposed to do when you when you get a great talent is is they work on these guys' mental game. They teach them how to work and think their way around a golf course, how to how to how to build a, a certain level of of confidence and, and presence on a golf course, and how to analyze a shot and how to get the most out of your round. That's the really the job of a college coach. So it, that's they're coming out of these programs really well prepared as as well prepared as you can be. And if, if you're in college and you're beating other guys on your level, you're probably ready to, ready to go and step and step into a paying professional career. You know, the results this year tell us that, don't they? Wolf, Morikawa and Hovland, uh, you couldn't get three better examples of kids that just stepped straight out of college and straight into successful mm-hmm. professional. I, th- I think that's just scooping the outliers off the very edge of the curve, though. Um, uh, I agree. Like, and it's not, I, I think it has happened before. We saw it in a really thick like chunk of players who feel like they can run with the Morikawas and the Wolfs and those guys um, and try and follow them on to the tour but just can't make it. And I, he's talking about the the dozens or maybe hundreds of, of players who just aren't quite at that level of those outliers. Um, they all have this false hope. I think that's the ones he's talking about. Right yeah, and maybe there's something there's yeah. something baked into the system that it, look it, every player like I said I'm sure if you go back to 1975 the the best college players were convinced that they were going to be great pros and the best high school players were convinced that too but maybe there is something baked into the entire equation where more kids are are having a false sense of idealism about where the what their potential is and where they can go in in the game and it's not just coming from within the players but I think I would suspect that's coming from all the people that see the riches on tour and have surrounded themselves have surrounded these kids. And, um, so, I mean, I'm, I, to your point, I I think that's definitely true, but I don't know that I would always put it on, on the player. Exactly. I think there's a lot of voices in the rooms, uh, when when these kids are, are thinking about this. There's 10% is everywhere, isn't there? Uh, in golf and the bigger the money's yeah. got, the more of them there's been. On the upside, what that has absolutely guaranteed is that, Mike Clayton, if you're listening, you have booked yourself a spot on this show, my friend, to explain just what it is that you're talking about there. Uh, and several other stuff as well. We'll get Clayton on the show soon enough. Uh, let's get off that topic for a bit. There was a couple of really interesting things happened during this week. We've got an ongoing document in the background now, and uh, you noted a couple of these, agents, which I thought was particularly interesting. Let's start with Randall Mell, who wrote an opinion piece, which was a fairly broad piece about women's golf in general. But the, the performance of the Europeans and the American players on the LPGA in the wake of a brilliant Solheim Cup but the reality being that uh, they've had a pretty horrible couple of years as a group and that uh, Korean women dominate the tour, and that's still the case, and hoping for a Solheim Cup bounce. All of that was moderately interesting, but my goodness, the reaction log. Uh, Lizette Salas took a shot at him. Marina Alex took a shot at him. What's the changing nature of the relationship between players and the press when you've got this social media tool at your disposal now? Yeah, I, I mean, I question what that article was for like what what was he trying to achieve with that article um just other than give the european and american players a bit of a kick up the butt um it was tuesday he's got a column due tuesday he's got to write about something he's got nothing else to write about this week and (laughs) this is what's come up (laughs) that's how it works and and perhaps he didn't mean it to be quite uh to elicit quite the reaction that it did um, I think he gave some follow-up comments. Oh, he did. I, I, I missed them, but <laughs> there were uh, some exchanges. 
Yeah. Well, so what happened? I missed those follow-up comments. What happened there? Well, let me just pull it up. I had it handy. I've got it right here. Oh, have you? Fantastic. Yeah. He he responded uh, saying – what did Marine Alex was say Salas. first? Or Salas? What did they say, Derek? Those two. Marina Alex was along the lines of you can't forget about getting an interview with anybody from basically <laughs> yes two yeah teams. you basically lost lost your credibility and and your credentials when it comes to getting you know inside information or interviews from the uh, women on on the LPGA or um, and then. He responded and said, first of all, the irony of the play in Scotland is newsworthy that the exceptional U.S. Euro effort comes in what is so far a historically poor year for the United States and Europe. This is the good part. He says, I don't cover the LPGA like it's junior golf and I don't write PR. I treat pros like they're pros, unquote. Which – now that's the essence of it, I think, Derek. Probably – well, I don't know. I imagine most journos would feel the same. This is a – these are – these are sometimes difficult negotiations, aren't they, between those of us who write about the game and those who play the game? Yeah, of course, of course. But, <laughs> you know, think about other sports. And if and if columnists – there's a little bit of a difference maybe in this case because, you know, he's a beat reporter, I think, and also and he's sort of writing an you know, editorializing right now too. But but if, if you cover, you know, other sports like, you know, soccer around the world or in, in this country, NFL football, and your team stinks – You've got to co- you've got to write that. Everybody knows it. Everybody's thinking it. You're you're not doing your job if you're not articulating what you see happening on the field. And that's I think what he did. And did he put a little extra hot sauce on it? Perhaps. But he's right. I mean, I think we're seeing that what we're seeing now in media. And I know you guys talk about this a lot. You see it is so much of the messaging and coverage is coming from within the 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 headquarters of the tours themselves. It, instead of having independent journalists writing for newspapers from across the country or across the world and reporting what they see, you're getting, the public is getting so much of its messaging from in-house. It's really, it is PR. So I think that we're coming, we're in a generation now of players that are used for that. People are not used to being criticized. These are professional athletes, but they're not used to getting criticized. And especially true in golf where there's just never really, it's not a part of golf journalism to be very critical or, or to scrutinize or look too closely. Uh, this, in this piece that Mel wrote, he did that. He, he, he said what I think a lot of people were thinking and think all the time about the U S and the Europeans versus uh, women who play from other parts of the world. And it's, it's, I don't, and clearly, I don't want to say that, that, you know, the LPGA players are, are, are pampered, but you know, they, they didn't like it, but they need to live with it. Cause you know, there's an element of truth to it. It's part of the job, isn't it? I recall last year, I think it was the Australian open last year, Patrick Smith, who's a columnist down here for a paper called the Australian wrote a piece that was somewhat critical of the field at the Australian open. And, there were some really sensitive responses from some people within Golf Australia, and what. The, and I recall writing a piece at the time saying, "If this was football, yeah, the, the sports editor would have told Smith to go and write something that was controversial when he produced this piece." We're much more sensitive in golf. Do you think, Adrian? Do you think that's fair? Other sports is much more rough and tumble with the the interactions between the press and the players and the clubs. I, I don't follow any other sports, right? So I no, can't no, really comment. Neither do I, but, <laughs> but but I do. Um, I really I, I love that follow up for for his sort of. Um, uh, it, it, I, I thought his original article lacked a bit of teeth, to be honest. If you wanted to be 
It was a bit Critical. of a ramble, really, wasn't it? It didn't really. It was a bit of a ramble, and I love that follow-up though. As I treat pros like pros, yeah. fantastic. Yeah. If if you wanted to write something controversial about the Solheim Cup, it was a fantastic contest. But how good was was the golf really that good? Thank there good. was some. It was spectacular. close. <laughs> yeah, there was some spectacular set pieces mm-hmm. in that final day. But if you want to be critical, day three had some of the worst professional golf I've ever seen in, in those conditions. They, they played in some tough conditions, granted. And uh, yeah, well, I, I you've just like lost your LPGA credentials up. too, Adrian. Yeah, that's right. You, you and Randall Melvin <laughs> cover it from outside. I, I felt like a few of the players got showing up on uh, the Saturday there. There was some pretty poor shot making. And I didn't see anybody write about that, which I thought was a bit of a shame. Well, you wrote about it. You wrote about it to me in several texts. Uh, <laughs> but you didn't uh, didn't publish them. Show notes. <laughs> That's right. In the, I'll publish your texts in the show notes. Uh, Randall Mel, not the only Jan to come in for a hammering this past week. You'll be somewhat sympathetic to this cause, I suspect. Derek Bradley Klein dared to say something that wasn't one hundred percent glowing and positive about Sweetens Cove, and he certainly heard about that. I think you've been down this path, haven't you, Derek? Yep, you said something I have, about yep, been there, done that. Yeah, Sweetens Cove. Yeah, what was your take yeah. on that? Well, I, I, I've absolutely a hundred percent believe that honesty in evaluation is essential. Um, it, it, golf seems to be one of the f- the few places that I can think of where uh, ratings or, or a review of a golf course or a negative review is looked down upon, and yet in everything else in life, we rely on ratings and, and customer feedback and, and, and the input of critics to influence our decisions because there are so many decisions to make. There are so many options and you want to know what you're getting into. But golf is just kind of ties back into that. What we were just talking about golf is really soft. Uh, nobody likes to be criticized just if, I mean, I, of course, but it's necessary and it's honest. And if anybody's going to do it, Brad Klein is going to come at it from it with a clear perspective and, and he's got the, He's got the credentials and he's got the experience and that to do it. I mean, he he knows as much, if not more, than than everybody about golf courses and and the structure of golf courses. Um, now, Sweetens Cove is a particular case. It is a it is a sacred cow in golf course architecture. Um, so many people the, people don't just love it; they revere it, they idolize it. Cult they are. Isn't it? So. Yes, yes. There's a there's a cult following. I mean, it's so, and it's completely it's irrational that it that it's taken so so seriously. Um, it's a it's a really fun place to play. It's not a perfect golf course by any means, and that's what Brad Klein was was pointing out. But it's a really really fun place to play. But it it's <laughs> if if you criticize it, you're going to get some blowback from from. And in fairness, it's not everybody, but there are there are a, a handful of people that will come after you and um i've had my go about with some of them and and brad klein got a little bit of taste of that this week as well what, what were his criticisms Derek? because I, I my reading of it was that it was actually quite similar to some of the your comments mm. where the green just felt like it was pretty extreme and it yeah. was greenkeeper's revenge i think he called it yeah yeah i mean, yeah, I mean the, the the i mean there are there are, his criticism was basically, I mean, essentially what he went on record with was that, you know, the greens are a little bit over the top and you have to go there willing to embrace an extreme style of golf and, and be willing to tolerate uh, some misfortune 
when you're playing into these greens. He was also complimentary. Not, not actually really a criticism, is it? It's actually it yeah, well, could it's, be considered it's a, a compliment. Right. The thing about Sweden's Cove is is that's why that's why so many people like it. They love that element that they don't see almost anywhere else. That I mean, you can hit it. You can go around there and make some birdies, and you can also make tens because you just cannot get the ball on the green from certain places. Some people like that. I think uh, there's a certain element of I think there are mostly young golfers who who think that's kind of hip and cool and people with a a little bit more traditional outlook it, it's a little it's a little brash it's a little it's a little over the top for them um and that's and that's simply what Bradley Klein was saying uh but you know like I said when you're when you when you talk about Sweetens Cove that's that's part it's part of the recipe that's that's an element of the the whole experience does what, if anything, Adrian, does this tell us about sort of golf culture and new golf culture? I'm intrigued by the new Twitter account, Woke Kenzie, who pokes fun at, you yes. know, single strap bags and for the most part, I think, does a pretty good job of it. it Trestle sticks. It, sorry. <laughs> I, I didn't even know what those were, but I, I had to go look yeah. it up. Um, <laughs> what, what, what? I can't even keep up, I don't think, anymore with <laughs> with what goes on with a lot of this stuff. And then of course, because we've now got social media, there's so much more of it, isn't it? Everybody's a blogger and a journo and a camera person and got a podcast and what's going on with all of that stuff? Is it harder to sort the the, the hay from the chaff or whatever the saying is these days? Uh, perhaps. I mean, every, it does afford everybody to have an opinion and to find an audience for their opinion, doesn't it? And uh, uh, look, I think it's all right. It's little things get more and more segmented if you if you want to form your own little group of people who uh love sweetens for very specific reasons then you can do that and if you want to form a little group a little your your own little echo chamber between uh derek and uh brad (laughs) on uh (laughs) the two-person club of people who are going to criticize sweetens and then or have any sort of like in fact i again to be clear, I don't think even Brad Klein was being critical of oh, um, Sweetens. And similarly, I don't think you were really being that critical, Derek. It was just pointing out a playing characteristic of the place that um, well, the difference uh, you was know, those, you, those you, greens are really challenging yeah. to get the ball on. You were talking it's to pushed you were, up you, and lots of repelling slopes. Yeah. Derek was interviewing you were interviewing Rob Collins, weren't you, about Swins when you sort right. of put that yeah. opinion. He came he, on the he came on the, on the podcast and we talked about it and I I told him my opinion and and we ex, and he explained it and we talked about it and neither person's opinion changed but we had a, a really good discussion um and it's and that part was wonderful. It was kind of the fallout afterwards. Yeah. Um that where things got I don't want. They didn't get ugly, but um, silly. It kind of it left. I'll say this: it left a bad taste in my mouth for sure. Yeah. yeah. Uh, well, yeah. There you go. It's uh, the classic sort of Twitter uh, trolling. Um, there was something else I was going to ask you about, Derek. Oh, yes, of course. Episode fifty-seven of the Feed the Ball podcast dropped this week. Trip Davis. I've listened to about three quarters of it on my drive from Sydney to Melbourne. Not because I drove from Sydney to Melbourne so quickly, but because I was doing a whole bunch of other stuff and some other podcasts. Sounds really good. Yes. Yeah, Trip Davis is a really cool guy. We talked about this a little bit last week, but I think um, really accomplished player, and you know, just somebody that that had a he he's a he's a really talented guy, really f- great conversationalist, has a lot of uh, fascinating insights into uh, golf construction and the strategic side of golf, and um, it, it's 
kind of too bad that that he just like everybody in in architecture isn't getting a chance to to build new golf courses on on fresh pieces of land even though we don't really need that right now but uh, there's so much creativity and talent in the field it's it's too bad but you know he's really satisfied um doing restoration work now he's very busy very doing doing a great job so if, you, if anybody hasn't listened to that yet please do it's uh, a really good conversation because trip's a great conversationalist and a great talker it's a real issue that isn't it adrian this incredible pool of talent golf course design talent that is just bubbling under the service and all dressed up with no place to go yeah it is um and i guess we just mentioned rob collins and um i, I want to point everybody at uh, a new project that King Collins Golf is working on with Landman Golf Club. Very hard to say. Um, I think I've got that right. Landman Golf Club, um, which it looks like an amazing piece of land and um, huge credit to them and massive congratulations for, for getting that job because it is really hard to get uh, new projects these days. But um, it looks is, like an amazing project they've got themselves there. Is, is Andy, sh- John, uh, Friday, are they shooting a documentary about this? Go to one, filming the whole thing? Is that, that- oh, yeah, there was some episode. It was a weird piece that they put out yeah, on that. I think it was sort be. of weirdly artistic, and uh, I didn't quite, I didn't quite get it. But it was, yeah, it was. Uh, yeah, there seems to be something along those lines there. Mm. And and Rob Collins's or King Collins Golf Twitter account actually has quite a lot of behind the scenes stuff. It's worth a follow. Now you would if think interested in the whole process that that project is a direct result from their work at Sweetens Cove, wouldn't you, Adrian? No, Sweetens Cove, they don't yeah. get that gig. That that tells you how. It's hard. It's a hard gig to get into golf course architecture for that reason. You got to find somewhere to be able to do something so that that something can lead others to employ you to do something else. So you can, well done. We had Rob Collins on the I Seek podcast, if I recall, Adrian. He was terrific. Yeah. I thought um, straight talk was. has opinions and yeah. not afraid to share them, and which was why he's frank and open exchange. Well, that's that, I, to me. I, I think that that if I, I'm sorry to interrupt, that that is really a testament to the power of social media as well. I don't if. If it were not for, I think Rob Rob would admit this too. If it weren't for for Twitter and Instagram, I don't know that Sweetens Cove would still be in business. No, it might not have survived. But because of the uh, online enthusiasm and the, the word of mouth or the the word of eyes that spreads through social media, Sweetens Cove has become a phenomenon. And and so that's an example of, I don't know if I can think of another example right now of that literally keeping a course in business. The, the fanaticism that I just talked about has been very beneficial uh, for Rob Collins and, and Tad King because, yeah, without it and that enthusiasm and that passion and just that that complete drive to promote Sweetens Cove, yeah, he probably – I don't know what he's doing right now. I think he would he would say that as well. So so congratulations to them uh, you know, for, for parlaying that out in, into an actual – golf course that that is going to be built right now so um that that's start, that's the, the positive influence of social yeah. media did that start with the new york times if i'm not mistaken yeah new york that, times uh, i wonder how much that gave it a kickstart there was a piece in the new york times and we always underestimate just how massive the reach is of a big publication like that mm. i don't know if that had more of an effect than the social media maybe started but, so if, rolling, if, perhaps yeah no doubt the social media has had a big effect there but i'm always surprised to hear that social media has any effect at all in the meat world because uh, it, it just seems like it's just so, such an easy way to engage where you give something a like or follow or interact and engage with people online. It's so hard to make that um, result in a real world action of getting off your butt and going somewhere um, and to reach a 
sort of some sort of critical mass where it saves the business. I, I, I don't know. I'd be surprised. I but I, I think word of mouth must be a huge part of the Sweetens Cove success as well. Like people visiting and and relaying their experience of the place. Perhaps some of that's online, but, but a lot of it, I reckon, would just be people talking to their friends and saying, "Go to come out here. This is great." Right. And clearly some of the people who are open to that message have <laughs> there are developers and people who have the potential to make projects happen. Uh, so it, it has the potential to run up to the highest levels of the yeah. of the food chain, so to speak. It's funny that social media thing you talk about, Adrian, because I'm, I'm kind of in your camp as well, except perhaps in this case, in that if you watch people on the train on their phones, you know, they get on Instagram or Facebook or whatever, and you can just see them just get like, 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 post after post after post. What's the value of that? How do you quantify that? What's that worth? I, th- I think it's, it's like anything in uh, commerce and online commerce, it's, it's a numbers game, and if you get – enough of those then it means there's something. some very small percentage of them yeah. that result in some more meaningful interaction and uh and and that's where yeah perhaps sweetens does have that a little bit but I'd, I'd be surprised honestly if it had that much of a material effect i think it's certainly a factor but and it's an important part of their brand i think to have interesting. a big I, online presence yeah i don't agree with you but i'm gonna have a think about that for the rest of this week as to why i don't agree with you and i'll come back tomorrow and make a uh, next week and make a devastating case that you won't be able to recover yep. from uh well if like, you rack up a lot of likes on twitter you can make adrian Logue's top 50 <laughs> golf twitter influencer list well he's, we all know he's <laughs> been manipulating that for years because he always somewhere? finishes I, I don't know. At, at least one spot higher than i do so that's not a coincidence that's for sure uh last <laughs> thing i want of course resulted in massive real world riches yeah that's exactly right well. look at look at us now that's right I'm now, I'm now a media baron i've got my own golf network um yes <laughs> <laughs> last, last thing i wanted to mention this week i nearly forgot this one i've just had a look through my list and this really did fly under the radar uh multiple drivers failed the conforming the characteristic time test derek at this the safeway open the third event of the pga tour season they tested 30 at least five failed possibly more Almost nothing made of this flew completely under the radar. Should it? What's going on there? Shouldn't this be a significant story? Players playing with there's clearly a lot of players, golf pros playing with non-conforming equipment. I wish you would have gone to Adrian with this one first. <laughs> I'm trying to I'm trying to uh, honor my own thoughts here and and not think about the PGA Tour too much and and this kind of stuff. <laughs> I think this is a problem. I don't know how big of a problem it is. Um, Does and it's probably been going on for 15 years ever since, you know, the, the latest generation of 460 CC, you know, thin face drivers have been out. It's just now maybe they're getting around to being more diligent and testing or it's leaking out. But I mean, what they, it, it seems, I'll say something probably that's like super, like so obvious that's stupid, but it, I mean, every driver should be tested every week. If you're going to, mm-hmm. if you're going to go down this route, if you're going to test drivers, you should test everybody's driver every week. Yes. Or just make it so prevalent that you kind of get herd immunity where, you know, 30 out of a field of, what, what do they have, fields of 124 or something, 156. 144, right? so 156 usually. That's that's not enough. Like I think you've got to get up to like 80% tested every week or something like that. And then everybody's going to get tested pretty regularly then and you kind of get this sort of herd immunity effect, I think, where – it, you'll 
you'll strike it out. It doesn't have to be 100%, I think, but 80% should do it. But but uh, the thing is, like, I mean, this isn't like drug testing where players are trying to get an advantage. The players don't even know that they're non-conforming. They're just hitting the same driver that they've been hitting the last seven weeks. So I don't, I mean, it just, it doesn't... Um, Oh, it's not the players' fault. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I don't. Yeah, no, I, mean, I don't. They, they, anybody, I think nobody should be yeah. blaming players for this. But is it a symptom? I, I, I guess is it is it symptomatic of something else? Is more the question because in and of itself, yeah. it's uh, as everyone knows, and the the differences are tiny, etc., etc., etc. But the fact that the the manufacturers are pushing the limits so close right. to the limits to use yes. up the limit and the tolerance, the fact that there's a tolerance built in is something that a lot of people question as well, and then exceeding the tolerance. Is that symptomatic of something something bigger? Not necessarily the specifics that one player or another's club might fail that test at that time, but that that's the general thought pattern or thrust of the way people are doing business in that world, I suppose. Uh, it's it's, symbol, it's symptomatic of rampant corporate selfishness. Um, <laughs> just to- just to take it there, um, yeah. I mean, it, it's why go for why go so close to the limit with this stuff? I just don't get it. Like it's it's this corporate mentality of wanting to squeeze every last drop out of every little like dial that you can turn, maximize it right up to right up to the limit, and in some cases to the point where you might just be getting away with a little bit more than you're supposed to. I, I can't I can't stand that attitude. It's focusing on the wrong things. Mm. if you if you take that attitude into any business, it's trying to extract uh, every last dollar and or trying to squeeze every last drop out of the lemon. but though those those few drops that you get from that all of that effort to go that last like fraction of one percent, they're pretty they're like a it's a bitter bitter part of the lemon mm. to be extracting from. All of that effort that goes into operating on the fringe, whereas if you pull that back and operate much more in the fat part of the curve, then you can you can put your efforts into things that produce a much more pleasing product. In my in my opinion, um, I think that's where they should be putting their effort rather than trying to uh, put so much effort into dodging the system. If, if Picasso tried to perfect every brushstroke that he made, would he have produced any good art? Well, probably not. Like, uh, you know, it's, it's, um, <laughs> that's, a, that's a rabbit <laughs> hole. Picasso into it. Too. Excellent. Yeah. yeah. Nice work. <laughs> well, have they, have they, I'm assuming they, they've been doing the CT test for no. every year all the no. time. No, started this year. Okay. After well what, then after what happened at yeah. the open, this is the first year they've started. And I don't think they're doing it at every tournament. Even I should mm-hmm. I should really read up on that. Well, I, don't I mean, think they're doing it. Every don't tournament. you? Yeah, don't you think, Rod, that that as this continues to happen and and Callaway or or Ping's name gets you know put out in the press, then the manufacturers may start to well, to walk put, back from that line. They're not that putting, but they're not putting them out in the press. Yeah, they're, they're absolutely they're not putting names out. I can't no. believe they they're not it's the shaming same as, these these companies. Exactly. Well, they did it at the, what, what was it at the Open or when no, they, um, no, that Callaway's name Shoffley added no, himself. Yeah, he went That's into right. a press conference and said, "You know, I've been hammered for this. And, my driver failed. Yeah, yeah, my driver failed, and they're picking on me." And the journalist went, "Hang on a minute, what?" What are you talking about? And that's how that story. Well, this broke, goes back is- to the whole the whole point of the PGA's, you know, just burying its head in the sand about yes. the the equipment issue. There's something troubling they could, they about could this. Stop, they could stop this to you know this next week in the tournament by anybody who fails. They they 
put the put the company's name out yeah. in the press release. Yes, of course they could, but no, they won't. You know, <laughs> it's uh, there's there is something disturbing about this whole issue, and I don't think it's actually the the issue with the clubs themselves. It's about the way it's being dealt with, and there's a lot of there's a lot of things that are quite troubling about that. I'm not sure why I'm troubled by it as much as I am, but I really am. And the fact that it just flew under the radar, nobody seems to care. And even you had a bit of a ho hum reaction there, Derek, which I think is interesting. I'm not making that as a criticism. I think a lot of people have just had a ho-hum reaction. Oh, well, you know, it just happens. It's okay. It'll be okay. It'll work out. So uh, interesting stuff. That's it from me. Have I missed anything from your list, Adrian? No, no, all good. Good? All good, good, I think is the term. Good, good. That's that's exactly right. Derek, have I missed anything from your list? No, I, I'm uh, I've exhausted. Yeah, I'm exhausted too. Well, I, I don't think you've thrown any uh, hand grenades this this week. I better listen back closely to the show and see if there's anything I missed in the running. But uh, thank you, Derek. Duncan, great to have you aboard. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. And to you too, Adrian. Thank you for uh, interrupting your jet lagged sleep to uh, to join us. Thank you for that. Thanks, Rod. Thanks, Derek. Episode 3 of the Good Good Golf Podcast in the books. Thanks for tuning in. Hope you've enjoyed listening as much as we've enjoyed talking. If you like what we do, tell other people about it. Make sure to subscribe. It is, of course, free. We'll be back to do it all again next week here on the Good Good Golf Podcast.